they don't want you to hear um, this is Asanabe. Um, Y'all want to know what triggers a narcissist more than anything else in the world? Y'all want to know what triggers a narcissist more than anything else in the world? Reality. That's also the same exact thing that triggers colonizers. I love these Reality. narcissism creators because it helps me to understand and deal with colonizers. The topics that I create on really give me a lot of experience with this. And I can tell you that if you take any narcissism video and you exchange the word narcissist with colonizer oh, and empath with native, you'll see American history. Because narcissists don't have empathy. They don't feel bad for what they do. It's really about accountability. And if there's no way to hold them accountable, then they think they won. Same thing with colonizers. And if you want to talk about gaslighting, they're all about freedom. But they're the ones who believe that no one should have freedom except for them. Yeah. Just like a narcissist, they have this grandiose idea that they're perfect. Mm -hmm. And if you say anything against them, they lose their freaking minds. Yeah. Now I just can't unsee it. Yeah. There's a lot of people who are good at things. Yeah, hold on. Hello, traveler. It is good to see you. I have a very important quest. It requires somebody who is willing to do things that many will not. So what do you think? Was your interest peaked or no? <laughs> I've always loved the video game analogy. Somebody asked me what is the meaning of... Yes, yes, let me tell you a little more about the boarding schools. You see, modern society has no idea how much it owes to indigenous people. Did anybody know how they found the minimum nutrition requirements that they put on the back of food labels? The Native American boarding schools, of course. They would starve children and, and feed them nutrition-deficient food and slowly, gradually raise the nutrition until they found the minimum requirements to sustain life. Many of those kids in graves were probably starved to death. Wait for all the comments from our elders who remember... Somebody asked me what is the meaning of life one time. I need my staff for this one. The real question has to do more like, how deep into the woods are you willing to go? How do you feel about walking in the woods? Are you scared of the woods? Are you scared of the woods at night? One thing's for certain, when you walk into the woods, there's going to be mosquitoes. And the deeper into the woods you go, to be... I want to hear more about the boarding schools. Not to be, that is... Yes, yes, let me tell you a little more about the boarding schools. You see, modern society has no idea how much it owes to indigenous people. Does anybody know how they found the minimum nutrition requirements that they put on the back of food labels? The Native American boarding schools, of course. They would starve children and, and feed them nutrition-deficient food and slowly, gradually raise the nutrition until they found the minimum requirements to sustain life. Many of those kids in graves were probably starved to death. Wait for all the comments from our elders who remember receiving a vitamin pill in school because the United States promised to feed Native Americans in the treaties 
They wanted to spend the least amount of money possible, so they found the very minimum nutrition requirements to sustain life, and that's what they gave Native people on reservations in their commodities and in school. So you can even thank us for all of your modern medical advancements as it pertains to health. Let this resonate around the earth. What are the great wow. advancements that we have in this country again? Oh, yes. Medicine. So I want to talk about Avatar, the way of water for a bit. Yes, oh yes, gosh. let me tell you a little more about the boarding schools. Like Native American spiritual people. Check this out. The first insane asylum. What are the great advancements that we have in this country again? Oh yes, medicine. How do you think they made all of the anatomical advancements in the 18th, 19th centuries? How do you think they perfected surgery? I have one more thing to show you. Did you know that mental health and social services in America was literally invented to take native kids away and institutionalize the American spiritual people? Check this out. The first insane asylums in America were dedicated to Native American people. Because they made our religion illegal, what they would do is arrest the spiritual people when they were taught practicing and give them mental health assessments and give them schizophrenic diagnoses because they could talk to spirits and put them in mental institutions and take their kids away. This ties right in with the boarding school era, how they took all the native kids and put them in boarding schools where they did things like the nutrition experiments that I made a video on previously. And between the boarding schools and the mental institutions, it put a lot of fear into our communities as far as ceremonies and spiritual teachers go. And that's why they're so hard to find. So what were you taught that was so great about this place? You guys don't even They're so hard to find. So what were you taught that was so great about this place? You guys don't even know that they literally made Native American religion illegal in 1883. Specifically so they could take our kids away. And in a couple of months, the Supreme Court will be ruling on the law that allows us to keep our kids again. You see, when our people speak loudly, it's not because they hate you. It's because they want you to wake up. We need your help. Somebody asked me, what is the meaning of life one time? I need my staff for this one. The real question has to do more like, how deep into the woods are you willing to go? How do you feel about walking in the woods? Are you scared of the woods? Are you scared of the woods at night? One thing's for certain, when you walk into the woods, there's going to be mosquitoes. And the deeper into the woods you go, the more mosquitoes there's going to be. That's why I'm doing a video. Uh -huh. Yes, yes, let me tell you a little. And, and feed them nutrition deficient food and slowly, gradually raise up all the native kids and put them in boarding schools where they did things like the nutrition experiments that I made a video on previously. And between the boarding schools and the mental institutions, it put a lot of fear into our communities as far as ceremonies and spiritual teachers go. And that's why they're so hard to find. So what were you taught that was so great about this place? You guys don't even know that they literally made Native American religion illegal in 1883. Specifically so they could take our kids away.
And in a couple months, the Supreme Court will be ruling on the law that allows us to keep our kids again. You see, when our people speak loudly, it's not because they hate you. It's because they want you to wake up. We need your help. Yes, yes, let me tell you a little more about the boarding schools. To share this. You see, modern society has... And seventh fire messenger. I said it. Everybody should watch this. It should be part of the new national curriculum. I think we should put CRT. Left from boys. Love from boys. Teachings. Asinabe and Seventh Fire Messenger. This is why Medicine man. Okay. There's no yeah. idea how much it owes to it. Yeah, go support his Etsy shop. Go get yourself some sage or and or um, spirit catchers. For you know your, your dreams. Okay, Trump gets devastating news. It's Fulton County prosecution. Eight hours ago, prosecution. I'm Ben Marcellus from the Midas Touch Network. Rico, Rico, Rico. Read all about it. We've been talking about this now for months here at the Midas Touch Network. That Fulton County District Attorney was focused on Rico or racketeering charges in her criminal investigation of Donald Trump and other close Donald Trump aides for their election interference in connection with the 2020 election, and specifically as it relates to crimes committed in Georgia and in Fulton County. And we are 
learning the scope of this RICO and racketeering portion of Phony Willis's criminal investigation in more detail now as she looks to make her charging decision. And just for reference, she's previously said in a letter uh, to the Fulton County Sheriff's Department that they should be prepared for high-profile indictments at the end of July, early August. So I think we can say with a high degree of confidence that is when Donald Trump and some of his close aides will be indicted by a grand jury. There's a recent article it was just published by the Washington Post. It's called Georgia Probe of Trump Broadens to Activities in Other States. Why would a Georgia state prosecution broaden to impact other states? Why would Fawny Willis be focused on that? Well, it is because of RICO or the racketeering statute in Georgia. Let's go into the article where they interview a lawyer with a great deal of familiarity with the RICO statute. The lawyer name is John Malcolm, a former Atlanta-based federal prosecutor who's now a constitutional scholar at, it's identified as a conservative, the Conservative Heritage Foundation. This is what he says about it. Georgia's RICO statute is basically two specified criminal acts that have to be part of a pattern of behavior done with the same intent or to achieve a common result or that have distinguishing characteristics. That's it. It is very, very broad. The article goes on to then cite somebody by the name of Morgan Cloud, a law professor at Emory University in Atlanta and an expert on Georgia state RICO law who says the following. The Georgia RICO statute is very broadly written to allow the inclusion of violations of federal law as well as some other states' laws, said Morgan Cloud. That's why there's this focus on the crimes that were being committed in other states as part of showing a common plan and scheme by Donald Trump with essentially orders going down the chain of command, even showing violations of law in other states could then be imputed to Donald Trump's overall criminal conspiracy in Georgia as part of the overall criminal acts taking place in Georgia. This uh, constitutional scholar goes on to say, for example, acts to obstruct justice committed in Arizona might be relevant if the goal of the enterprise of the racketeering activity was to overturn the 2020 presidential election nationally as well as in Georgia. So that's why the conduct in the states is demonstrative of common plan and scheme where you can charge someone with the RICO statute in Georgia. Focusing on Fulton County District Attorney Fawny Willis's criminal investigation, there's a number of aspects that she is um, keenly, keenly focused on. Number one, Donald Trump's call to Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State, where he threatened Brad Raffensperger. Yeah. Find me 11,780 votes or else. 
that call I'll to most you. legal observers One more. a criminal act right there, then a we, threat, extortive. Think that can serve as an independent basis for a criminal charge. Number two, the fake elector scheme, whereby individuals who ah. were uh, allied with Donald Trump affixed their signatures. Sir. And a major Republicans in Georgia uh, who signed their name on a electoral certificate claiming Donald Trump won, and they submitted that to be counted by then Vice President Mike Pence, and it was a forgery. It was it was false. The, the 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 electoral certificate was fraudulent. Donald Trump did not win, and them saying Donald Trump is the winner is independently a crime. Now, how would that relate to RICO or racketeering? Well, that connects directly up to the plan by people like Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani, who are carrying out the orders of Donald Trump. And even if Donald Trump did not specifically speak to any of these individual fake electors with a RICO or racketeering statute, Tonight, we begin with developing news in the... I thank him for um, all the kindnesses that we've shared with each other over the years, but more importantly than that, I thank him for leaving the private sector, for any of these individual fake electors with a RICO or racketeering statute, the overall common plan and scheme to overturn the results of the election in Georgia were carried out. And so that is how RICO racketeering can be applied there. Another area in Phony Willis's ongoing criminal investigation where she will likely criminally charge Donald Trump, perjury, submitting false declarations. You may recall that as part of the January 6th committee's subpoena that they issued to one of Donald Trump's lawyers, John Eastman, and Eastman tried to block the subpoena, Eventually, a federal judge in the Central District of California made the ruling that the crime fraud exception applied. What we learned through John Eastman's documents is that Trump's lawyers knew that Donald Trump was signing a perjurous, false declaration in Georgia, falsely attesting to the number of people who he claims uh, voted for President Biden who weren't supposed to vote for President Biden, who were he claims were dead or unavailable or out of state. And Donald Trump and his lawyers knew these numbers were false, but they submitted them to a judge as evidence of uh, election fraud, which they knew to be false. And then kind of finally, there's an area of Phony Willis's criminal investigation we've talked a lot about here now. It's getting attention from a lot of large media networks, but that is the uh, overall kind of plan and scheme within the Trump campaign to essentially steal uh, voting data in various local election offices throughout the country. There were lots of local election offices that were breached by individuals hired by the Trump campaign. The example of what took place in Georgia took place in an area called Coffee County, where then the chair of the Coffee County GOP, somebody by the name of Kathy Latham, let in people who worked for the Trump campaign 
who extracted election data that they weren't allowed to have access to because the overall plan there was to manipulate that data and then claim that there was election fraud. Part of the common plan and scheme there was Giuliani and Sidney Powell wanted to seize voting machines after the November 2020 election. They were then told that they couldn't seize voting machines or there was no ability to do that, so they came up. What's the likely prison? The next best thing, perhaps in their mind even better, let's breach local election office voter data and take that and, and launder that and make up conspiracies around that. So here, in making this RICO and racketeering charge out, the way you would do it is you would say, okay, Donald Trump's at top, view that as like a mafia boss. Below, got Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani. Okay, then below that, they executed their orders through people like Kathy Latham. And Kathy Latham then allowed in these individuals who extracted the data. And ultimately breaching the local election data, which is a crime to do that, to steal election data, you can now charge Donald Trump in a RICO charge with the theft of the election data by Great. connecting it that way. And nice. then if you want to also show the overall common plan and scheme, what else was the Trump campaign doing in other states, right? This is how it all relates. You focus on Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Colorado, because in those states, election data was also breached. Local election offices were breached the same way it was in Georgia, in Coffee County. So that's why those states would be a focus. You also focus on a lot of these other states where Donald Trump was engaged in the same types of threats and extortive conduct and harassment of local election officials. Also take a look at those states I just mentioned, and Arizona, and New Mexico, and Wisconsin, and some other states. And then you demonstrate that Trump was involved in this overall nationwide scheme, and its tentacles reached into Fulton County, Georgia as well, and then charged Donald Trump with the RICO or racketeering Rico charge for the overall common plan and scheme there. Election One fraud, other area we're uh, learning from this Washington Post article data. where... Election interference case. Actually, he lost some weight. He's not. He's not a fat fuck anymore. Fortunately, it's fun to make fun of him.
Rico, Rico Suave, Rico Suave. Rico Suave. Yeah. Rico Suave said so we can expect racketeering charges late July. Ha 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 ha. And theft of the election data. Which is definitely a crime for all you fucking Trump humpers. Bonnie, the meat man. File. Summit or summit. Ask the judge to disqualify this MFG traitor and terrorist under 14th Amendment, please. Jesus fucking Christ. Can I get a witness? Can I get a witness? All you um, Trump humping, Trump humpers. <laughs> All you Trump humpers. Die hard Trump boot licking boot lickers. Going to write funny Willis letter ask if I could file a kiss brief or some ask the judge to just qualify this MFG traitor and terrorist unfortunate men please can I get a witness JFC 
to Jesus fucking Christ, superstar. Masterclass. Right. So, um, yeah. Uh, Bonnie Willis is focused on as well. Subpoena declaration in Georgia falsely attesting to the number of people who he claims uh, voted for President Biden who weren't supposed to vote for President Biden who were, he claims were dead or unavailable or out of state. And Donald Trump and his lawyers knew these numbers were false, but they submitted them to a judge as evidence of uh, election fraud, which they knew to be false. And then kind of finally, there's an area of Phony Willis's criminal investigation we've talked a lot about here now. It's getting attention from a lot of large media networks, but that is the... Uh, overall kind of plan and scheme within the Trump campaign to essentially steal uh, voting data in various local election offices throughout the country. There were lots of local election offices that were breached by individuals hired by the Trump campaign. The example of what took place in Georgia took place in an area called Coffee County, where then ah. the chair of the Coffee County GOP, somebody by the name of Kathy Latham, let in people who worked for the Trump campaign, who extracted election data that they weren't allowed to have access to, because the overall plan there was to manipulate that data and then claim that there was election fraud. Part of the common plan and scheme there was Giuliani and Sidney Powell wanted to seize voting machines after the November 2020 election. They were then told that they couldn't seize voting machines or there was no ability to do that, so they came up with the next best thing, perhaps in their mind even better. Let's breach local election office voter data and take that and, and, and launder that and make up conspiracies around that. So here, in making this RICO and racketeering charge out, the way you would do it is you would say, okay, Donald Trump's at top. View that as like a mafia boss. Below, got Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani. Okay, then below that, they executed their orders through people like Kathy Latham. And Kathy Latham then allowed in these individuals who extracted the data and ultimately breaching the local election data, which is a crime to do that, to steal election data, you can now charge Donald Trump in a RICO charge with the theft RICO of the election data by connecting it that way. And then if you want to also show the overall common plan and scheme, what else was the Trump campaign doing in other states, right? This is how it all relates. You focus on Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Colorado because in those states, election data was also breached. Local election offices were breached the same way it was in Georgia, in Coffee County. So that's why those states would be a focus. 
You also focus on a lot of these other states where Donald Trump was engaged in the same types of threats and extortive conduct and harassment of local election officials. Also take a look at those states I just mentioned, and Arizona, and New Mexico, and Wisconsin, and some other states. And then you demonstrate that Trump was involved in this overall nationwide scheme, and its tentacles reached into Fulton County, Georgia as well, and then charge Donald Trump with the RICO or racketeering charge for the overall common plan and scheme there. One other area we're learning from this Washington Post article where uh, Phony Willis is focused on as well, subpoenaing a company called Sympatico Software Systems and Berkeley Research Group. These were groups that Trump paid, I think, collectively over $1 million, almost, I think, close to $1.5, $2 million. And he paid them to analyze the data the Trump campaign did about whether or not there was fraud in the election. And both groups ultimately determined and let Donald Trump know there wasn't any election fraud at all that was capable of overturning the election, that it was a safe and secure election. But Donald Trump and the campaign suppressed that information and would not allow that information uh, to go out. And so those uh, entities, Sympatico Software and Berkeley Research, are a major part of Fawny Willis's investigation. But as I said from the outset of this video, Rico, Rico, Rico. So pay attention to that. I think Fawny Willis's indictment is going to have some of the most serious crimes listed in it. And ultimately, in the aggregate, it will mean... And if Donald Trump was not in the, the age he is, I mean, we're talking about, you know, probably 20, 30, 40, 50 year prison sentences that are going to go along, I think, with some of these very serious charges that are going to be brought when you look at all these charges in the aggregate. So get ready for that. I'm Ben Micellis nice. from the Midas Touch Network. Hit Look subscribe. We're that. on our way to 1.5 million subscribers. Thanks for your summer. support. Check us out at patreon.com slash Midas Touch. Wherever you get audio podcasts, summer. subscribe to the Midas Touch podcast. Thanks for watching. Hit subscribe and have a fantastic yeah. day. Lock him up. Indictment season Fuck is upon him. us. Celebrate with the new indictment Italy season. in prison. Marsha Blackburn finally gets bad news that could end her career goods. I'm Jessica Denson, Martin host of Cunt. Lights On with Jessica Denson here on the Midas Touch Network. And I'm so honored to be joined by Tennessee Representative Gloria Johnson. Representative Johnson, welcome to this special episode of Lights On. Thank you for having me. I um, enjoy being here. Looking forward to it. <laughs> well, we, as a, we as a nation got to know what a rock star and badass woman, which we love to have badass women here on Lights On, that you are a month or so back when you and your fellow colleagues, Representative Jones and Representative Pearson, were threatened with expulsion. They, of course, were expelled from the Tennessee legislature. You survived that by one vote, but you have been just the most amazing fighter on behalf of your constituents in Tennessee. And we are hearing news, and this is what I'm so excited to talk to you about, that you may take on Senator Marsha Blackburn in the upcoming nice. Uh, U.S. Senate race. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Fuck that con. Yes. Um, you know, I've been actually thinking about it for about six months. 
and uh, just wondering what that would look like and everything. Uh, trying to consider, you know, what the what the best best path forward is, how I can help my state the best. And um, and so then, of course, the recent events over the last month and a half. So um, is is kind of I, I saw Nancy Pelosi spoke announced. and she said sometimes there's a moment when you have Started. to be ready. So that Come made on, me think do it. and uh, you know think more seriously about it. Start attacking her so immediately. I haven't uh, come to that 100 percent yet, but I am Come still um, trying to face. make that decision and see what the best thing for our state is. That's what I'm. I'm taking into consideration. Well, it's not we to have fucking Marsha Blackburn in there. Fighting of democracy in Tennessee. Fucking and so uh, I just want to make sure that we are motivating our Democratic base, making sure as many people go out to vote. And I'm just going to figure out and I'm talking to folks to find out where they think I, I might best go. Uh, because I was asked by a whole lot of people over the whole last year to do this. And so um, I'm just getting more serious and serious as I consider the possibilities for, you know, 2024. Come on, stop pussyfooting. I definitely want to talk to you more about that attack on democracy in Tennessee. I think that it's kind of a microcosm of a lot of the southern states and what you showed with all the people that came out in support of just this common sense gun reform that that Republicans and so-called conservatives have been so reluctant to pass to actually save lives was such a such a beautiful display of what the will of the people really is. But just going back to Marsha Blackburn, I mean, she is such a, she almost seems to rebel in her cruelty. Um, and I, I, I really am rubbed the wrong way by some of the things she says as a Christian, because she, she's one of those ones that go out, goes out and parades her faith and you know, breaks the golden rule and um, do not bear false witness against your neighbor every day. Can you tell me just from your perspective, what are some of the um, you know, policies and just standpoints from, of Marsha Blackburn that would motivate you to run against her in Tennessee? She is so extreme. She is way outside what the average Republican and Democrat and independent in Tennessee want. I mean, she is, um, she has deep in the pockets of the pharmaceutical lobby of the NRA, you know, these things. In Tennessee, what people don't understand about Tennessee, um, we do, tip, as a state, typically tend to vote red or vote Republican. But the reality is we've seen um, poll after poll in Tennessee that says more than 70% of Tennesseans want Medicaid expansion. We haven't even expanded Medicaid in our state. More than 60% of Tennesseans on all sides of the aisle want to invest in public schools, not charters and vouchers. And then paid family leave is supported overwhelmingly by 84% of Tennesseans. And that's red and blue counties. Um, abortion, at least in some form or fashion, is overwhelmingly supported by 80% of Tennesseans in every county. And they are, we have a full, complete abortion ban with no exception for rape and, and incest. Only a fucking disgrace. That's cruel and unusual punishment Only and slavery of an ectopic baby slave or a uh, non living fetus. That's it. So and this was one of those trigger laws that took effect once Roe was overturned, wasn't it? 
Absolutely. And so it was a huge surprise for the people. And even when they passed that bill, that trigger ban, back in 2019, the sponsor of that bill lied on the House floor because I asked the sponsor, I said, is there an exception for rape, incest in the life of the mother? And at first she said, no, which was the truth. And after I spoke a little bit longer, she came back and said, oh, wait. There's an exception for life of the mother, which is a lie, complete and total lie. It is probably still on the website uh, summarized as having an exception for life of the mother, but there was never one. I put in a sliver this last legislative session, but we live in a state where 10-year-old girls are forced to carry a pregnancy. And there are potential felony charges, aren't there, for people who are involved in trying to help someone who yeah, is in need of an abortion get an abortion? Cool and unusual punishment. Uh, stand up against 15 years. So they've set up the situation that the more in danger a woman is of her life and the life of the fetus, the safer the physician is. Mm-hmm. Now, if they wait till that very last second, maybe they won't be convicted of a felony. But the reality is under the original law, um, they would they could be they could be charged and lose their license, have to hire an attorney and have to defend them themselves in court, even for an ectopic pregnancy. That. Just the most extreme. And Tennesseans do not believe in that. But they are not legislating for Tennessee families. They are legislating for the special interests and the <gasps> NRA, the Tennessee Firearms Association, and the Right to Life, Tennessee Right to Life Organization. Yeah, and Tennessee, like you were saying, is one of those states that's just under, democracy is under attack in your state. And it just, I, I recall just recently the gerrymandering of Nashville. They eliminated that Democratic seat for the U.S. House of Representatives. Um, just a complete disregard of the will of the people of Nashville, which is a very blue city. Um, what do you think needs to be done? I, and, and, you know, I think turning turning um, Tennessee into a blue represented state in the, in the U.S. Senate would be a huge step in that direction. Of course, we saw it happen in Georgia with the election of Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff. But what do you think can be done to combat these authoritarian tendencies um, that was reflected in, in the resignation, sue them out of to just office, dissent, which happens to be the will of the majority of the people of the state. What what can we do to, to flip the script? Absolutely. I think that what we've got to do is take advantage of this movement. Take advantage. And what we see are the young people stepping up and standing up and saying, we will not go back. We will not go back to our classrooms where we do active shooter drills and fear for our lives while we're trying to, to learn, you know, it's just remarkable that a lot of the legislation, just hideous legislation they passed this year that actually hurts children. They said under the guise of we're protecting children, protect the children from the guns. And they act as if, you know, everybody's going to take away their guns. That's absolutely not what, what's not going to happen. 
We want things like red flag laws and safe storage laws, universal background checks with no loopholes. These are things that overwhelmingly 80, 70 to 80% of Tennesseans want to see happen. They're not doing the will of even their own party right now. They're doing the will of the special interests. And in, in Tennessee, what happens is Republicans are really only concerned about their primaries. They're not concerned about their Democratic opponent. They think they've got that covered. But what they're concerned about are their, Democrat, are their Republican primaries. And so they go as far as they can to extreme right to motivate that base. And so they can win their Republican primaries. That's what my colleagues in the House do. That's what Senator Blackburn does. You know, it's just ignoring the will of the majority of Tennessee families of all parties and doing the best that the bidding of the special interests. And, you know, in the Tennessee House, what we've seen is they cut our minds. They limit debate, debate to five minutes. Uh, they won't call on us much of the time. They won't accept our amendments. You know, when I was there first in 2013 and 14, we had a speaker, Republican speaker, uh, Speaker Harwell, Beth Harwell. And um, I can tell you that I don't recall her cutting mics. I don't recall ever not being called on when I had my hand up. And, and certainly they did not limit debate like they do now. So um, what we see, it's all, it shows absolute power corrupts absolutely. When you have a supermajority, you don't even need the other party in the room. They don't even like to have a discussion. And we're discussing a bill. Last year, we were discussing the biggest piece of legislation we passed in years. And it was a new funding formula for education. Precious little debate. It's embarrassing and shameful that Tennesseans did not understand that bill. It wasn't even fully baked. It was like we were flying the plane in midair, and they voted while the plane was still in midair. And they don't care because they have the vote. And their folks just follow along and do what they're told. And then they go, oh, wait, that's a mistake. We shouldn't have done that. Well, <laughs> we told you. It seems like they really take their power for granted in Tennessee with these supermajorities, and they take the disengagement of voters for granted. And I think that's why, like you said, this momentum is such a promising shift, because when people are watching um, and when they get to see what they are really engaged in, it is ugly. And nobody wants this. Nobody wants people like this running um, their state legislatures, their U.S. Congress presidency, nothing. And I want to I want to just point out because, again, like I said when we introduced you, I, I really think you've been a badass woman fighting in Tennessee for so long. We just got to know you on a national level level recently. I, I think that if I read this correctly, you were the only vote to abstain from voting for the current House Speaker. Uh, Sexton, and he retaliated against you by um, shoving you into a windowless conference room and putting your your aide in a in a closet. Am I right about that? Yeah, and then my my office was not. It was about the size of a small closet, actually. And um, and what for a year? And the interesting thing is, like, not only did they do childish retaliatory things like that. Then, right across the hall from me was the empty office. 
the extra member office that I didn't get sat empty across the hall from me for a year. And you know, this was COVID. There weren't there weren't even six feet to social distance in my office if I had someone come in. I couldn't have more than one person in my office. It was uh, it was truly something. But I could not vote for someone who has kept our state for ten years from having access to affordable health care. And someone who tried to keep the bust of Nathan Bedford Boy, a slave trader, a murderer, and the first KKK of the Grand Wizard, that bust sat outside the doors of our, our the House floors, and uh, we had to walk past it to go onto the House floor. Our Black members had to walk past that statue of a murderous slave trader as we went onto the House floor. What message Gross. does that send? And of course, um, when they tried to expel you, and they did expel representatives Justin and Pearson, there were such, such far, uh, much worse um, violations of decorum, if you would say. I mean, I've heard that there was somebody urinated on someone else's seat. You had people seated in the house who had um, criminal indictments pending, who were convicted on domestic violence. I mean, just the their standard was not even close. Um, and, and we've heard, I think, since since those expulsions, and of course they, their seats were reinstated and they're running again for that special, uh, to, to regain permanently their seats through special election. But um, we heard after that that it's possible that rep uh, the, House, the House Speaker Sexton does not even live in his district. Can you give us any update on anything that's going on with that? He doesn't live in the district. His kids are enrolled in school here in Nashville. He has a home in Nashville. Um, you know, people have been saying to me for a year that they haven't seen him in Crossville, the town where he's supposed to live. And so, um, you know, a lot of people have known about it, but nobody's uh, really cared about it until some national folks like Judge, Judd Lagoon looked into it. And, the, you know, the thing about it is, I feel like fraud. when you talk about that day, I feel like, like, massive fraud. Just, window just light was shown on that house floor and the whole nation even the world saw what was happening in the tennessee legislature which we had tried to talk about and actually see it firsthand it's just like oh my goodness you know how can people be doing this and getting away with it it was just maybe a month before i was sitting in criminal justice committee one of my colleagues, they had a bill to bring back the um, electric chair and firing squads for the death penalty. And one of my colleagues, after I spoke against the bill, one of my colleagues said, well, I like this bill and I think I'm going to sign on. And I think we should bring back Hanging by a Tree. Well, Hanging by a Tree is lynching. He didn't say gallows. He said Hanging by a Tree there it's there all the time and i will not let those comments go by without speaking up. we have to tell the truth it may be a hard truth and people may not like it we have got to tell the truth because this hate and bigotry i feel like it's growing and it's part of silencing Domestic an terrorism. opinion of somebody respects the human dignity of every person in the state.
We should expect the dignity of every human being in this country. That's not what we're seeing in the Tennessee legislature. Demand this resignation. Well, I, I hope that fear is a, a motivating factor. I know you have a lot of fans out there in Tennessee and across this country who would absolutely love to see you bring that sunlight um, to to the U.S. Senate. And a lot of these things from, from local to state to federal, um, it's going to take more Democrats who are doing, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking as someone who came from the other side of the aisle and seeing that the Democrats are the ones who are engaged in good faith efforts to really protect our freedom. Um, you, you've been bringing to light what it takes in that fight, what's at stake, and these forces that we're fighting against. Um, thank you so much for joining us on this special edition of Lights On. Where can, where can our viewers follow you and stay up to date on, on any announcements you may make uh, in this potential bid challenge, Marsha? Well, they can follow me on Facebook, State Representative Gloria Johnson. On Twitter, vote Gloria J. Instagram, I'm Rep Gloria Johnson, I believe. And then, of course, the Tennessee General Assembly website has my the page for my office and my contacts at my office as well. And so, it's been great to have so many people reaching out and saying, you know, thank you for shining a light on these things. And um, it's really been wonderful to raise the voices of these young people and these parents. You know, my colleagues across the aisle were so offensive to these families from Covenant who were suffering after that shooting. They called them a woke mob. They called them insurrection. Just, that's a horrible way to talk about families who are suffering the death of either children or school staff. Well, as someone who spent a lot of time in Tennessee and absolutely loves the state from Knoxville to Nashville to, to Memphis and, and uh, Gatlinsburg, all, all across the state, it's a beautiful state. I know the people do deserve better than what is going on in that legislature right now. Representative Gloria Johnson, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it. Tech needs to jump in the race. Talking smack about Marsha Blackburn. and boot out yet another
traitor. Tim, you. Your state and your country need you. Crush that woman and boot out yet another corrupt AF Republican traitor. Do it. Stop thinking about it. You had six months. Jump in the race and get cracking. By the way, Jessica, I'm running for president 2020. For, I it said 2020. I'd be happy to be on your show. Hit me up. loading Discussing the biggest piece of legislation we've passed in years, and it was a new funding formula for education. Precious little debate. It's embarrassing and shameful that Tennesseans did not understand that bill. It wasn't even fully baked. It was like we were flying the plane in midair, and they voted while the plane was still in midair. And they don't care because they have the votes. And their folks just follow along and do what they're told. And then they go, oh, wait, that's a mistake. We shouldn't have done that. Well. <laughs> For Jessica Denson, lights. <laughs> we told you. It seems like they really take their power for granted in Tennessee with these supermajorities, and they take the disengagement of voters for granted. And I think that's why, like you said, this momentum is such a promising shift, because when people are watching um, and when they get to see what they are really engaged in, it is ugly. 
and nobody wants this. Nobody wants people like this running um, their state legislatures, their U.S. House, Congress, presidency, nothing. And I, I want to I just point out, because like I said when we introduced you, I, I really think you've been a badass woman fighting in Tennessee for so long. We just got to know you on a national level, level recently. I, I think that if I read this correctly, you were the only vote to abstain from menu. voting for the current no, for House Speaker, they don't want you to hear um, this is Asanabe. Um. Y'all want to know what triggers a narcissist more than anything else in the world? Y'all want to know what triggers a narcissist more than anything else in the world? Reality. That's also the same exact thing that triggers colonizers. I love these Reality. narcissism creators because it helps me to understand and deal with colonizers. The topics that I create on really give me a lot of experience with this. And I can tell you that if you take any narcissism video and you exchange the word narcissist with colonizer and empath with native, you'll see American history. Because narcissists don't have empathy. They don't feel bad for what they do. It's really about accountability. And if there's no way to hold them accountable, then they think they won. Same thing with colonizers. And if you want to talk about gaslighting, they're all about freedom. But they're the ones who believe that no one should have freedom except for them. Yeah. Just like a narcissist, they have this grandiose idea that they're perfect. Mm -hmm. And if you say anything against them, they lose their freaking minds. Yeah. Now I just can't unsee it. Yeah. There's a lot of people who are good at things. Yeah, well, hold on. Hello, traveler. It is good to see you. I have a very important quest. It requires somebody who is willing to do things that many will not. So what do you think? Was your interest peaked or no? <laughs> I've always loved the video game analogy. Somebody asked me what is the meaning of... Yes, yes, let me tell you a little more about the boarding schools. You see, modern society has no idea how much it owes to indigenous people. Does anybody know how they found the requirements that they put on the back of food labels. The Native American boarding schools, of course. They would starve children and, and feed them nutrition-deficient food and slowly, gradually raise the nutrition until they found the minimum requirements to sustain life. Many of those kids in graves were probably starved to death. Wait for all the comments from our elders who remember Somebody asked me what is the meaning of life one time. I need my staff for this one. The real question has to do more like, how deep into the woods are you willing to go? How do you feel about walking in the woods? Are you scared of the woods? Are you scared of the woods at night? One thing's for certain, when you walk into the woods, there's going to be mosquitoes. And the deeper into the woods you go, to be... I want to hear more about the boarding schools. Not to be, that is... Yes, yes, let me tell you a little more about the boarding schools. You see, modern society has no idea how much it owes to indigenous people. Does anybody know how they found the minimum nutrition requirements that they put on the back of food labels? The Native American boarding schools, of course. They would starve children and, 
and feed them nutrition deficient food and slowly gradually raise the nutrition until they found the minimum requirements to sustain life many of those kids in graves were probably starved to death wait for all the comments from our elders who remember receiving a vitamin pill in school because the united states promised to feed native americans in the treaties they wanted to spend the least amount of money possible, so they found the very minimum nutrition requirements to sustain life, and that's what they gave Native people on reservations in their commodities and in school. So you can even thank us for all of your modern medical advancements as it pertains to health. Let this resonate around the earth. What are the great advancements that we have in this country again? Oh, yes. Medicine. So I want to talk about Avatar, the way of water for a bit. Yes, oh yes, gosh. let me tell you a little more about the boarding schools. Analyze Native American spiritual people. Check this out. The first insane asylum. What are the great advancements that we have in this country again? Oh yes, medicine. How do you think they made all of the anatomical advancements in the 18th, 19th centuries? How do you think they perfected surgery? I have one more thing to show you. Did you know that mental health and social services in America was literally invented to take Native kids away and institutionalize Native American spiritual people? Check this out. The first insane asylums in America were dedicated to Native American people. Because they made our religion illegal, what they would do is arrest the spiritual people when they were caught practicing and give them mental health assessments and give them schizophrenic diagnoses because they could talk to spirits and put them in mental institutions and take their kids away. This ties right in with the boarding school era, how they took all the native kids and put them in boarding schools where they did things like the nutrition experiments that I made a video on previously. And between the boarding schools and the mental institutions, it put a lot of fear into our communities as far as ceremonies and spiritual teachers go. And that's why they're so hard to find. So what were you taught that was so great about this place? You guys don't even They're so hard to find. So what were you taught that was so great about this place? You guys don't even know that they literally made Native American religion illegal in 1883. Specifically so they could take our kids away. And in a couple months, the Supreme Court will be ruling on the law that allows us to keep our kids again. You see, when our people speak loudly, it's not because they hate you. It's because they want you to wake up. We need your help. Somebody asked me, what is the meaning of life one time? I need my staff for this one. The real question has to do more like, how deep into the woods are you willing to go? How do you feel about walking in the woods? Are you scared of the woods? Are you scared of the woods at night? One thing's for certain, when you walk into the woods, there's gonna be mosquitoes. And the deeper into the woods you go, the more mosquitoes there's gonna be. That's why I'm doing a vision. Uh -huh. Yes, yes, let me tell you a little. And, and feed them nutrition deficient food 
and slowly, gradually raised up all the native kids and put them in boarding schools where they did things like the nutrition experiments that I made a video on previously. And between the boarding schools and the mental institutions, it put a lot of fear into our communities as far as ceremonies and spiritual teachers go. And that's why they're so hard to find. So what were you taught that was so great about this place? You guys don't even know that they literally made Native American religion illegal in 1883. Specifically so they could take our kids away. And in a couple of months, the Supreme Court will be ruling on the law that allows us to keep our kids again. You see, when our people speak loudly, it's not because they hate you. It's because they want you to wake up. We need your help. Yes, yes, let me tell you a little more about the boarding schools. I share this. You see, modern society has... and seventh fire messenger. I said it. Everybody should watch this. It should be part of the new national curriculum. I think we should put CRT. Left from boys. Left from boys. Teachings. Asinabe and Seventh Fire Messenger. This is why Medicine man. Okay. There's no yeah. idea how much it owes to him. Yeah, go support his Etsy shop. Go get yourself some sage or and or um, spirit catchers. For you know your your dreams. Okay, Trump gets devastating news. This Fulton County prosecution eight hours ago. Prosecution. I'm Ben Marcellus from the Midas Touch Network. Rico, 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 
read all about it. We've been talking about this now for months here at the Midas Touch Network, that Fulton County District Attorney was focused on RICO, or racketeering charges, in her criminal investigation of Donald Trump and other close Donald Trump aides for their election interference in connection with the 2020 election, and specifically as it relates to crimes committed in Georgia and in Fulton County. And we are learning the scope of this RICO and racketeering portion of Phony Willis's criminal investigation in more detail now as she looks to make her charging decision. And just for reference, she's previously said in a letter uh, to the Fulton County Sheriff's Department that they should be prepared for high-profile indictments at the end of July, early August. So I think we can say with a high degree of confidence that is when Donald Trump and some of his close aides will be indicted by a grand jury. There's a recent article that was just published by the Washington Post. It's called Georgia Probe of Trump Broadens to Activities in Other States. Why would a Georgia state prosecution broaden to impact other states? Why would Fawny Willis be focused on that? Well, it is because of RICO or the racketeering statute in Georgia. Let's go into the article where they interview a lawyer with a great deal of familiarity with the RICO statute. The lawyer's name is John Malcolm, a former Atlanta-based federal prosecutor who's now a constitutional scholar at it's identified as a conservative, the Conservative Heritage Foundation. This is what he says about it. Georgia's RICO statute is basically two specified criminal acts that have to be part of a pattern of behavior done with the same intent or to achieve a common result or that have distinguishing characteristics. That's it. It is very, very broad. The article goes on to then cite somebody by the name of Morgan Cloud, a law professor at Emory University in Atlanta, and an expert on Georgia state RICO law, who says the following. The Georgia RICO statute is very broadly written to allow the inclusion of violations of federal law as well as some other state's laws, said Morgan Cloud. That's why there's this focus on the crimes that were being committed in other states as part of showing a common plan and scheme by Donald Trump with essentially orders going down the chain of command, even showing violations of law in other states could then be imputed to Donald Trump's overall criminal conspiracy in Georgia as part of the overall criminal acts taking place in Georgia. This uh, constitutional scholar goes on to say, for example, acts to obstruct justice committed in Arizona might be relevant if the goal of the enterprise of the racketeering activity was to overturn the 2020 presidential election nationally as well as in Georgia. So that's why the conduct in the states 
is demonstrative of common plan and scheme where you can charge someone with the RICO statute in Georgia. Focusing on Fulton County District Attorney Fawny Willis's criminal investigation, there's a number of aspects that she is um, keenly, keenly focused on. Number one, Donald Trump's call to Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State, where he threatened Brad Raffensperger. Find me 11,780 votes or else. That call to most legal observers, a criminal act right there, a threat, extortive. I think that can serve as an independent basis for a criminal charge. Number two, the fake elector scheme whereby individuals who were uh, allied with Donald Trump affixed their signatures. These are major Republicans in Georgia uh, who signed their name on a electoral certificate claiming Donald Trump won, and they submitted that to be counted by then-Vice President Mike Pence, and it was a forgery. It was, it was false. The, 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 the electoral certificate was fraudulent. Donald Trump did not win, and them saying Donald Trump is the winner is independently a crime. Now, how would that relate to RICO or racketeering? Well, that connects directly up to the plan by people like Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani, who are carrying out the orders of Donald Trump. And even if Donald Trump did not specifically speak to any of these individual fake electors with a RICO or racketeering statute. Tonight we begin with developing news in the... I thank him for um, all the kindnesses that we've shared with each other over the years, but more importantly than that, I thank him for leaving the private sector, for any of these individual fake electors with a RICO or racketeering statute, the overall common plan and scheme to overturn the results of the election in Georgia were carried out. And so that is how RICO racketeering can be applied there. Another area in Fawny Willis's ongoing criminal investigation where she will likely criminally charge Donald Trump, perjury, submitting false declarations. You may recall that as part of the January 6th committee's subpoena that they issued to one of Donald Trump's lawyers, John Eastman, and Eastman tried to block the subpoena. Eventually, a federal judge in the Central District of California made the ruling that the crime fraud exception applied. And what we learned through John Eastman's documents is that Trump's lawyers knew that Donald Trump was signing a perjurous, false declaration in Georgia falsely attesting to the number of people who he claims uh, voted for President Biden who weren't supposed to vote for President Biden, who were he claims were dead or unavailable or out of state. And Donald Trump and his lawyers knew these numbers were false, but they submitted them to a judge as evidence of uh, election fraud, which they knew to be false. And then kind of finally... There's an area of Phony Willis's criminal investigation we've talked a lot about here now. It's getting attention from a lot of large media networks, but that is the uh, overall kind of plan and scheme within the Trump campaign 
to essentially steal uh, voting data in various local election offices throughout the country. There were lots of local election offices that were breached by individuals hired by the Trump campaign. The example of what took place in Georgia took place in an area called Coffee County, where then the chair of the Coffee County GOP, somebody by the name of Kathy Latham, let in people who worked for the Trump campaign who extracted election data that they weren't allowed to have access to because the overall plan there was to manipulate that data and then claim that there was election fraud. Part of the common plan and scheme there was Giuliani and Sidney Powell wanted to seize voting machines after the November 2020 election. They were then told that they couldn't seize voting machines or there was no ability to do that, so they came up. What's the likely prison? The next best thing, perhaps in their mind even better, let's breach local election office voter data and take that and, and, and launder that and make up conspiracies around that. So here, in making this RICO and racketeering charge out, the way you would do it is you would say, okay, Donald Trump's at top, view that as like a mafia boss. Below, got Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani. Okay, then below that, they executed their orders through people like Kathy Latham. And Kathy Latham then allowed in these individuals who extracted the data. And ultimately breaching the local election data, which is a crime to do that, to steal election data, you can now charge Donald Trump in a RICO charge with the theft of the election data by Great. connecting it that way. And nice. then if you want to also show the overall common plan and scheme, what else was the Trump campaign doing in other states, right? This is how it all relates. You focus on... Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Colorado, because in those states, election data was also breached. Local election offices were breached the same way it was in Georgia, in Coffee County. So that's why those states would be a focus. You also focus on a lot of these other states where Donald Trump was engaged in the same types of threats and extortive conduct and harassment of local election officials also take a look at those states I just mentioned, and Arizona, and New Mexico, and Wisconsin, and some other states. And then you demonstrate that Trump was involved in this overall nationwide scheme, and its tentacles reached into Fulton County, Georgia as well, and then charge Donald Trump with the RICO or racketeering, Rico charge racketeering. for the overall common plan and scheme there. Election One fraud, other area we're uh, learning from this Washington Post article data. where...
election interference case. Actually, he lost some weight. He's not, he's not a fat fuck anymore. Fortunately, it's fun to make fun of him. Rico, Rico Suave, Rico Suave. Rico Suave. Okay. Yeah. Rico Suave, so we can expect racketeering charges late July. Ha 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 ha. And theft of the election data. Which is definitely a crime for all you fucking Trump humpers. Bonnie, I'm a neat man. File. Summit or summit. Ask the judge to disqualify this MFG traitor and terrorist under 14th Amendment, please. Jesus fucking Christ. Can I get a witness? Can I get a witness? All you um, Trump humping, Trump humpers. Huh. 
<laughs> All you Trump humpers. Die hard Trump bootlicking bootlickers. Going to write funny Willis letter asking if I could file amicus brief for some asset judge to just call this by this MFG traitor and terrorist and fortune men. Please, can I get a witness? JFC, sue Jesus fucking Christ, superstar. <laughs> Declaration in Georgia falsely attesting to the number of people who he claims uh, voted for President Biden who weren't supposed to vote for President Biden, who were, he claims were dead or unavailable or out of state. And Donald Trump and his lawyers knew these numbers were false, but they submitted them to a judge as evidence of uh, election fraud, which they knew to be false. And then kind of finally, there's an area of Phony Willis's criminal investigation we've talked a lot about here now. It's getting attention from a lot of large media networks, but that is the uh, overall kind of plan and scheme within the Trump campaign to essentially steal uh, voting data in various local election offices throughout the country. There were lots of local election offices that were breached by individuals hired by the Trump campaign. The example of what took place in Georgia took place in an area called Coffee County, where then ah! the chair of the Coffee County GOP, somebody by the name of Kathy Latham, let in people who worked for the Trump campaign who extracted election data that they weren't allowed to have access to because the overall plan there was to manipulate that data and then claim that there was election fraud. Part of the common plan and scheme there was Giuliani and Sidney Powell wanted to seize voting machines after the November 2020 election. They were then told that they couldn't seize voting machines or there was no ability to do that, so they came up with the next best thing, perhaps in their mind even better. Let's breach local election office voter data and take that and, and, and launder that and make up conspiracies around that. So here, in making this RICO and racketeering charge out, the way you would do it is you would say, okay, Donald Trump's at top. View that as like a mafia boss. Below, got Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani. Okay, then below that, they executed their orders through people like Kathy Latham. And Kathy Latham then allowed in these individuals who extracted the data and ultimately breaching the local election data, which is a crime to do that, to steal election data. 
you can now charge Donald Trump in a RICO charge with the theft Michael of the Rocky election Curry data by connecting it that way. And then if you want to also show the overall common plan and scheme, what else was the Trump campaign doing in other states, right? This is how it all relates. You focus on Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Colorado because in those states, election data was also breached. Local election offices were breached the same way it was in Georgia in Coffee County. So that's why those states would be a focus. You also focus on a lot of these other states where Donald Trump was engaged in the same types of threats and extortive conduct and harassment mm -hmm. of local election officials. Also take a look at those states I just mentioned, and Arizona and New Mexico and Wisconsin and some other states. And then you demonstrate that Trump was involved in this overall nationwide scheme and its tentacles reached into Fulton County, Georgia as well, and then charged Donald Trump with the RICO or racketeering charge for the overall common plan and scheme there. One other area we're learning from this Washington Post article where uh, Phony Willis is focused on as well, subpoenaing a company called Simpatico Software Systems and Berkeley Research Group. These were groups that Trump paid, I think, collectively over $1 million, almost, I think, close to $1.5, $2 million. And he paid them to analyze the data the Trump campaign did about whether or not there was fraud in the election. And both groups ultimately determined and let Donald Trump know there wasn't any election fraud at all that was capable of overturning the election, that it was a safe and secure election. But... Donald Trump and the campaign suppressed that information and would not allow that information uh, to go out. And so those uh, entities, Simpatico Software and Berkeley Research, are a major part of Fawny Willis's investigation. But as I said from the outset of this video, Rico, Rico, Rico. So pay attention to that. I think Fawny Willis's indictment is going to have some of the most serious crimes listed in it. And ultimately, in the aggregate, it will mean that if Donald Trump was not in the, the age he is, I mean, we're talking about, you know, probably 20, 30, 40, 50-year prison sentences that are going to go along, I think, with some of these very serious charges that are going to be brought when you look at all these charges in the aggregate. So get ready for that. I'm Ben Micellis nice. from the Midas Touch Network. Hit Look subscribe. We're on that. our way to 1.5 million subscribers. Thanks for your summer. support. Check us out at <laughs> patreon.com slash Midas Touch. Wherever you get Thank audio podcasts, subscribe to the Midas Touch podcast. Thanks for watching. Hit subscribe and have a fantastic yeah. day. Lock him up. Indictment season is upon us. Celebrate with the new indictment Literally season. in prison. Marsha Blackburn finally gets bad news that could end her career goods. I'm Jessica Denson, host of Lights On with Jessica Denson here on the Midas Touch Network. And I'm so honored to be joined by Tennessee Representative Gloria Johnson. Representative Johnson, welcome to this special episode of Lights On. Thank you for having me. I um, enjoy being here. Looking forward to it. <laughs> well, we as a we as a nation got to know what a rock star and badass woman, which we love to have badass women here on Lights On, that you are. 
a month or so back when you and your fellow colleagues, Representative Jones and Representative Pearson, were threatened with expulsion. They, of course, were expelled from the Tennessee legislature. You survived that by one vote, but you have been just the most amazing fighter on behalf of your constituents in Tennessee. And we are hearing news, and this is what I'm so excited to talk to you about, that you may take on Senator Marsha Blackburn in the nice. upcoming uh, U.S. Senate race. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Fuck that kind. Yes. Um, you know, I've been actually thinking about it for about six months and uh, just wondering what that would look like and everything, uh, trying to consider, you know, what the what the best path forward is, how I can help my state the best. And, um, and so, bitch. and of course, the recent events over the last month and a half. So um, it's, it's yeah, kind I of, it. I, I saw... Nancy Pelosi spoke and she said, sometimes there's a moment when you have to be ready. So that made me think, uh, you know, think more seriously about it. I haven't uh, come to that 100% yet, but I am still um, trying to make that decision and see what the best thing for our state is. That's what I'm taking into consideration. We are fighting an erosion of democracy in Tennessee. And so... Uh, I just want to make sure that we are motivating our Democratic base, making sure as many people go out to vote. And I'm just going to figure out and I'm talking to folks to find out where they think I I might best serve. Uh, Because I was asked by a whole lot of people over the whole last year to do this. And so um, I'm just getting more serious and serious as I consider the possibilities for you know, 2024. Come on, stop pussyfooting. I definitely want to talk to you more about that attack on democracy in Tennessee. I think that it's kind of a microcosm of a lot of the southern states and what you showed no with all of the people that came out and supported just this common sense gun reform that that Republicans and so-called conservatives have been so reluctant to pass to actually save lives was such a such a beautiful display of what the will of the people mm-hmm. really is. But just going back to Marsha Blackburn, I mean, she is such a, she almost seems to rebel in her cruelty. Um, and I, I, I really am rubbed the wrong way by some of the things she says as a Christian, because she, she's one of those ones that go out, goes out and parades her faith and, you know, breaks the golden rule and um, do not bear false witness against your neighbor every day. Can you tell me just from your perspective, what are some of the, um, you know, policies and just standpoints from, of Marsha Blackburn that would motivate you to run against her in Tennessee? She is so extreme. She is way outside what the average Republican and Democrat and independent in Tennessee want. I mean, she is, um, she has deep in the pockets of the pharmaceutical lobby of the NRA, you know, these things. In Tennessee, what people don't understand about Tennessee um, we do, tip, as a state, typically tend to vote red or vote Republican. But the reality is we've seen um, poll after poll in Tennessee that says more than 70% of Tennesseans want Medicaid expansion. We haven't even expanded Medicaid in our state. More than 60% of Tennesseans on all sides of the aisle want to invest in public schools, not charters and vouchers. And then paid family leave is supported overwhelmingly by 84% of Tennesseans. And that's red and blue counties. Um, 
abortion, at least in some form or fashion, is overwhelmingly supported by 80% of Tennesseans in every county. And they are, we have a full, complete abortion ban with no exception for rape and incest. Only a fucking disgrace. That's cruel and unusual punishment and slavery of an ectopic baby slave or a a non living fetus. That's it. And there's so many. And this was one of those trigger laws that took effect once Roe was overturned, wasn't it? Absolutely. And so it was a huge surprise for the people. And even when they passed that bill, that trigger ban back in 2019, the sponsor of that bill lied on the House floor because I asked the sponsor, I said, is there an exception for rape, incest in the life of the mother? And at first she said no, which was the truth. And after I spoke a little bit longer, she came back and said, oh, wait. There's an exception for life of the mother, which is a lie, complete and total lie. It is probably still on the website uh, summarized as having an exception for life of the mother, but there was never one. I put in a sliver this last legislative session, but we live in a state where 10-year-old girls are forced to carry a pregnancy. And there are potential felony charges, aren't there, for people who are involved in trying to help someone who yeah, is in need of an abortion get an abortion? Cool and unusual punishment. Physicians uh, stand against, up against 15 years. So they've set up the situation that the more in danger a woman is of her life and the life of the fetus, the safer the physician is. Mm-hmm. Now, if they wait till that very last second, maybe they won't be convicted of a felony. But the reality is under the original law, um, they would they could be they could be charged and lose their license, have to hire an attorney and have to defend them themselves in court, even for an ectopic pregnancy. Like that. Just the most extreme. And Tennesseans do not believe in that. But they are not legislating for Tennessee families. They are legislating for the special interests and the <gasps> NRA, the Tennessee Firearms Association, and the Right to Life, Tennessee Right to Life Organization. Yeah, and Tennessee, like you were saying, is one of those states that's just under, democracy is under attack in your state. And it just, I, I recall just recently the gerrymandering of Nashville. They eliminated that Democratic seat for the U.S. House of Representatives. Um, just a complete disregard of the will of the people of Nashville, which is a very blue city. Um, what do you think needs to be done? I, and, and, you know, I think turning turning um, Tennessee into a blue represented state in the, in the U.S. Senate would be a huge step in that direction. Of course, we saw it happen in Georgia with the election of Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff. But what do you think can be done to combat these authoritarian tendencies um, that was reflected in, in the resignation, sue them out of to just office, dissent, which happens to be the will of the majority of the people of the state. What what can we do to, to flip the script? Absolutely. I think that what we've got to do is take advantage of this movement. Take and what we see are the young people stepping up and standing up and saying, we will 
not go back. We will not go back to our classrooms where we do active shooter drills and fear for our lives while we're trying to, to learn. You know, it, it's just remarkable that a lot of the legislation, just hideous legislation they passed this year that actually hurts children, they said under the guise of we're protecting children, protect the children from the guns. And they act as if, you know, everybody's going to take away their guns. That's absolutely not what's not going to happen. We want things like red flag laws and safe storage laws, universal background checks with no loopholes. These are things that overwhelmingly 80, 70 to 80% of Tennesseans want to see happen. They're not doing the will of even their own party right now. They're doing the will of the special interests. And in, in Tennessee, what happens is Republicans are really only concerned about their primaries. They're not concerned about their Democratic opponent. They think they've got that covered. But what they're concerned about are the Demo- Republican primaries. And so they go as far as they can to extreme right to motivate that base. And so they can win their Republican primaries. That's what my colleagues in the House do. That's what Senator Blackburn does. You know, it's just ignoring the will of the majority of Tennessee families of all parties and doing the best that the bidding of the special interests. And, you know, in the Tennessee House, what we've seen is they cut our minds. They limit debate, debate to five minutes. Uh, they won't call on it much of the time. They won't accept our amendments. You know, when I was there first in 2013 and 14, we had a speaker, Republican speaker, uh, Speaker Harwell, Beth Harwell. And um, I can tell you that I don't recall her cutting mics. I don't recall ever not being called on when I had my hand up. And, and certainly they did not limit debate like they do now. So um, what we see, it's all, it shows absolute power corrupts absolutely. When you have a supermajority, you don't even need the other party in the room. They don't even like to have a discussion. You know, we're discussing a bill. Last year, we were discussing the biggest piece of legislation we've passed in years. And it was a new funding formula for education. Precious little debate. It's embarrassing and shameful that Tennesseans did not understand that bill. And it wasn't even fully baked. It was like we were flying the plane in midair, and they voted while the plane was still in midair. And they don't care because they have the vote. And their folks just follow along and do what they're told. And then they go, oh, wait, that's a mistake. We shouldn't have done that. Well, (laughs) we told you. It seems like they really take their power for granted in Tennessee with these supermajorities. And they take the disengagement of voters for granted. And I think that's why, like you said, this momentum is such a promising shift. Because when people are watching... Um, and when they get to see what they are really engaged in, it is ugly, and nobody wants this. Nobody wants people like this running um, their state legislatures, their U.S. Congress presidency, nothing. And I, I want to, I want to just point out because, Again. like I said when we introduced you, I, I really think you've been a badass woman fighting in Tennessee for so long. We just got to know you on a national level level recently. I, I think that 
if I read this correctly, you were the only vote to abstain from voting for the current House Speaker, uh, Sexton, and he retaliated against you by um, shoving you into a windowless conference room and putting your, your aide in a, in a closet. Am I right about that? Yeah, and, and my, my office was not, it was about the size of a small closet, actually. And, um, and what for a year. And but the interesting thing, it's like not only did they do childish, retaliatory things like that, but then right across the hall from me was the empty office, the extra member office that I didn't get sat empty across the hall from me for a year. And you know, this was COVID. There weren't there weren't even six feet to social distance in my office if I had someone come in. I couldn't have more than one person no, in my office. It was uh, it was truly something. But I could not vote for someone who has kept our state for ten years from having access to affordable health care, and someone who tried to keep the bust of Nathan Bedford Boyd, a slave trader a murderer, and the first KKK of the Grand Wizard. That bus sat outside the doors of our, our the House floors, and uh, we had to walk past it to go onto the House floor. Our Black members had to walk past that statue of a murderous slave trader as we went onto the House floor. What message Gross. does that send? Very clear message. And of course, um, when they tried to expel you, and they did expel representatives Justin and Pearson, there were such, such far, uh, much worse um, violations of decorum, if you would say. I mean, I've heard that there was somebody urinated on someone else's seat. You had people seated in the house who had um, criminal indictments pending, who were convicted on domestic violence. I mean, just the stand their standard was not even close. Um, and and we've heard, I think, since since those expulsions, and of course their their seats were reinstated, and they're running again for that special uh, to to regain permanently their seats through special election. But um, we heard after that that it's possible that rep uh, the house the house speaker Sexton does not even live in his district. Can you give us any update on anything that's going on with that? He doesn't live in the district. His kids are enrolled in school here in Nashville. He has a home in Nashville. Um, you know, people have been saying to me for a year that they haven't seen him in Crossville, the town where he's supposed to live. And so, um, you know, a lot of people have known about it, but nobody's uh, really cared about it until some national folks like Jud Judd Lagoon looked into it. And, the, you know, the thing about it is, I feel like when you talk about that day, I feel like, like, massive fraud. Just, window just light was shown on that house floor and the whole nation even the world saw what was happening in the tennessee legislature which we had tried to talk about until you actually see it firsthand it's just like oh my goodness you know how can people be doing this and getting away with it it was just maybe a month before i was sitting in criminal justice committee one of my colleagues, they had a bill to bring back the um, electric chair and firing squads for the death penalty. And one of my colleagues, after I spoke against the bill, one of my colleagues said, well, I like this bill and I think I'm going to sign on. And I think we should bring back hanging by a tree. Well, hanging by a tree is lynching. He didn't say gallows. He said hanging by a tree. 
there. It's there all the time. And I will not let those comments go by without speaking about We have to tell the truth. It may be a hard truth. And people may not like it. We have got to tell the truth. Because this hate and bigotry, I feel like it's growing. And it's part of silencing an opinion of somebody who respects the human dignity of every person in this state. We should expect the dignity of every human being in this country. That's not what we're seeing in the Tennessee legislature. Tremendous resignation. Well, I, I hope that fear is a, a motivating factor. I know you have a lot of fans out there in Tennessee and across this country who would absolutely love to see you bring that sunlight um, to, to the U.S. Senate. And a lot of these things from, from local to state to federal, um, it's going to take more Democrats who are doing, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking as someone who came from the other side of the aisle and seeing that the Democrats are the ones who are engaged in good faith efforts to really protect our freedom. Um, you, you've been bringing to light what it takes in that fight, what's at stake, and these forces that we're fighting against. Um, thank you so much for joining us on this special edition of Lights On. Where can, where can our viewers follow you and stay up to date on, on any announcements you may make uh, in this potential bid to challenge Marsha? Well, they can follow me on Facebook, State Representative Gloria Johnson. On Twitter, vote Gloria J. Instagram, I'm Rep Gloria Johnson, I believe. And then, of course, the Tennessee General Assembly website has my the page for my office and my contacts at my office as well. And so it's been great to have so many people reaching out and saying, you know, thank you for shining a light on these things. And um, it's really been wonderful to raise the voices of these young people and these parents you know, my colleagues across the aisle were so offensive to these families from Covenant who were suffering after that shooting. They called them a woke mob. They called them insurrection. Just that's a horrible way to talk about families who are suffering the death of either children or school staff. Well, as someone who has spent a lot of time in Tennessee and absolutely loves the state from Knoxville to Nashville to, to Memphis and, and uh, Gatlinsburg, all, all across the state, it's a beautiful state. I know the people do deserve better than what is going on in that legislature right now. Representative Gloria Johnson, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it. Check needs to jump in the race. Talking smack about Marsha Blackburn. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
and boot out yet another traitor. him you your state and your country need you crush that woman and boot out yet another corrupt day of Republican trader do it stop thinking about it you had six months jump in the race and get cracking by the way, Jessica, I'm running for president 2020. For, I did, said 2020. I'd be happy to be on your show. Hit me up. It's loading. Discussing the biggest piece of legislation we've passed in years, and it was a new funding formula for education. Precious little debate. It's embarrassing and shameful that Tennesseans did not understand that bill. It wasn't even fully baked. It was like we were flying the plane in midair, and they voted while the plane was still in midair. And they don't care because they have the votes. And their folks just follow along and do what they're told. And then they go, oh, wait, that's a mistake. We shouldn't have done that. Well. <laughs> For Jessica Denson, lights <laughs> We told you. It seems like they really take their power for granted in Tennessee with these supermajorities, and they take the disengagement of voters for granted. And I think that's why, like you said, this momentum is such a promising shift, because when people are watching um, and when they get to see what they are really engaged in, it is ugly. 
and nobody wants this. Nobody wants people like this running um, their state legislatures, their the U.S. House, Congress, presidency, nothing. And I want to I want to just point out because, like I said when we introduced you, I, I really think you've been a badass woman fighting in Tennessee for so long. We just got to know you on a national level level recently. I, I think that. If I read this correctly, you are the only vote to abstain from you. voting for the current you know, House Speaker, Sexton. Uh, 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 Another had a problem trying with to make reproductive a organs. Another had undeveloped lungs. Enki was disappointed. But Nimma still yielded trials for her heart was set to succeed. Enki stopped the attempts to say, the problem is possibly not in the mixture, nor in the ovum, nor in the essence. We are using a crystal from Nibiru. Let us use a vessel of the material of the earth, with gold and copper. So Nimma used the clay of the Abzu to make a vessel and mold it into a cleansing bath. Then she carefully mixed the egg of an earth female with the vital essence extracted from the blood of an Anunnaki. Then she directed the essence with the ME formulas, little by little. And then inserted the fertilized egg into the earth female's uterus. There was conception, it would be enough to wait for the foreseen time. And just in time the female went into labor and a boy slowly emerged. A newborn child was extracted by Nimma, who gazed intently upon her image. It was the image of perfection. With her hands, Nimma held the newborn child. Enki and Ninjisida watched the moment. The three celebrated. Enki said, your hands have made it. Enki... It's Jane. Successful in creating exclamation point Sumerian version of history. Exciting and true. That's why I like studying the
Then they gave the baby to its earthly mother and let her breast feed. Month by month the baby became a boy. A he boy. was huffing and puffing, unable to speak. But its limbs were fit for work. Enki pondered the matter and analyzed all possibilities. Then he said, of all that we have tried and exchanged, there is one thing that has never changed. The fertilized uterus was always that of a terrestrial woman. Possibly this is the only obstruction that still prevents the complete success. Ninma and Ninjishsuda looked each other suspiciously. Enki went on. The only alternative we haven't tried yet is an Anunnaki womb. Looked each other suspiciously. Enki went... Possibly this is the only obstruction that still prevents the complete success. Nimma and Jishida looked each other suspiciously. Enki went on. The only alternative we haven't tried yet is an Anunnaki womb. In order for the Nimma oh, and Ninjist of a terrestrial woman has never changed. The thing that has never changed. The fertilized uterus was always that of a terrestrial woman. Possibly this is the only obstruction that still prevents the complete success. Nimma and Ninjistida looked Did each you? other suspiciously. Enki went on. The only alternative we haven't tried yet is an Anunnaki womb. In order for the being to be created in our image and likeness, we needed to develop into an Anunnaki. Wise words, said Ninma. Possibly the correct mixture was inserted into the wrong uterus. But who will be the Anunnaki female who will receive the insemination womb? In order for the being to be created in our image and likeness, we needed to develop into an Anunnaki. Wise words. The so creation of the first the human required the womb the of an interest. Anunnaki woman. But who will be the Anunnaki female who will receive the incense? to create the primitive worker. Couldn't there be a monster? During her womb, Enki said, Let me speak to Damkina, my wife, also known as Ninki. No, interrupted Nimba. 
I have been studying the matter carefully. I prepared the vessels and mixtures. Let this room be mine. Let me take that risk. Enki offered his assent and in a clay vessel manipulated the mixture. Then he inserted the fertilized egg into Ninma's womb and conception took place. Labor began earlier than Nibiru's nine months, later than Earth's nine months. Enki supported the boy with his hands. It was the image of perfection. He gave a little slap and the newborn cried. He gave the baby into Ninma's hands. She lifted him up and said, My hands made it. And the newborn cried. His, his unobstructed, his ascent, and in a clay vessel manipulated the mixture. Then he inserted. The fertilized egg into Ninma's womb and conception took place. Labor began earlier than Nibiru's nine months, later than Earth's nine months. Enki Ordered the boy with his hands. It was the image of perfection. He gave a little slap and the newborn cried. He gave the baby into Ninma's hands. She lifted him up and said, My hands made it. My hands made it. My hands made it. My hands made it. Then Ninma drew the baby to her bosom and gave the food of life that flowed from her body. The baby was nourished and observed. Enki saw for a mother and her child. It was not Ninma and any other being. The newborn had ears in good shape, eyes unobstructed, limbs adequate, feet on bottom, hands on top. He wasn't hairy like the savages, his hair was dark black, his skin was smooth. His skin was dark red, his blood had the same color. His private parts were different from the private parts of the Anunnaki. The shape was strange, there was fur covering the front part. <laughs> Enki said, let him be different from us by this front skin hanging from his private parts. <laughs> then he continued, Ninma, this is a being, not a life. creature. Will you name it? Ninma spoke, his name shall be Adamu, and it means like the clay of the earth. A cradle was made for the little Adamu. The Anunnaki talked in the house of life. Now we need an army of primitive oh, workers. And this must be the model. He must be treated like a firstborn and he must be protected from work. It must be just the model. Your essence will be the mold. And so Ninma suggested that the caretakers of her city, Shurabak, be taken to the house of life, 
to receive the next inseminations. Seven Anunnaki accepted the activity. Enki glorified their names and Ninjisuda recorded them to be remembered. Ninima, Shuziana, Ninmada, Ninbara, Ninmug, Nuzadu, and Ningana. Ninma prepared the seven clay vessels. She extracted the eggs from the female bipeds. She extracted the life essence of Adamu and placed it little by little in the containers. Then, through a small incision in the intimate parts, she extracted a drop of blood from Adamu. And then, she pronounced, let this be a sign of life. Let us always proclaim that flesh and soul have combined. Then she squeezed the male private parts to make them bleed and added a drop of blood to each container. In the clay mixture, terrestrial and Anunnaki will unite. An incantation was spoken by Ninma. For the unity of the two essences, one from heaven, one from earth to be brought together. The essence of earth and Nibiru will unite by blood kinship. Ninjisida recorded Ninma's words. Fertilized eggs were inserted into the wombs of Anunnaki females. There was conception. The births were on schedule and seven earth males were brought to life and feed by their mothers. They were seven perfect primitive workers. Let the procedure be repeated and seven more primitive workers take over the work, said Ninjishsida. Enki spoke, my son, seven by seven will not suffice. We need more Anunnaki heroines for the job. Ninma said, this is unbearable work. We must make females, Enki said. Let them know each other, let the two become one flesh, and let them procreate by themselves so that they may make their own offspring. Ninjisida must change the ME essence formulas to adjust from male to female. And an Anunnaki womb to create the female will be needed. Ninma, Enki and Ninjisida looked at each other. Enki uttered, let me call by Ninki, my wife, Damkina, so that this time she will give birth. At the house of life, Ninki became aware of everything that had been done and what her role was in all of this. And assenting to what she should do, Ninjisida adjusted the ME formulas, fertilized an ovum, and Enki inserted it into his wife's womb. There was conception, but in the correct time there was no birth. The months were counted and it was decided that Ninma would perform a procedure. He made a small incision and deftly made the opening. The face lit up and what was in the womb came out. Everyone got emotional. It was a female, a newborn, a girl. Its ears were well shaped, its limbs were proper, it had hands and feet. It wasn't hairy, it had smooth skin like that of the Anunnaki. Ninma held the girl in her hands, patted her lightly to make her cry, and gave her to Ninki to feed. Enki said, it is a being, not a creature. 
it is our image and likeness. Perfection is created. You have generated the model for female workers. What will your name be? Ninky, with tenderness and emotion, spoke, Tiamat will be its name. It means the mother of life. It will be named after the ancient planet from which both the earth and the moon were made. Of the vital essences of her womb others will be molded and illuminated. Right Thus a multitude of primitive workers will be created. After some time Ninma extracted the vital essence of Tiamat and inserted it into seven vessels made from the clay of the Abzu where the eggs of the biped females were already. Then she uttered incantations and inserted them into the Anunnaki wombs. In time, seven females were born. Enki said, let the males and females know each other, and let them give birth to diverse primitive workers. Let them procreate by themselves and the offspring will give birth to new offspring. May they grow together, may they become male and female. So Enki, Ninma, Ninjishida, and Ninki celebrated and built cages, placing them caged among the trees. Enki went on, may Adamu and Tiamat be a way of work. May they be sent to the Eden to show our success to the rest of the Anunnaki. Adamu and Tiamat were directed to Eridu, the city of Enki in the Eden. So the Anunnaki came to see them. Enlil was satisfied with what he saw and his displeasure was eased. Ninurta and Ninlil also knew them. Marduk, son of Enki, came from the station of Lamu to meet them. It was a beautiful, beautiful, amazing creation. Your hands made it, the Anunnaki told the creators. With the primitive workers our days of toil will come to an end, they all said. But not everything went as expected. In the Abzu beings grew, but maturity took a while to happen. Enujai questioned Enki about the primitive workers who were slow to grow and proliferate. The Anunnaki complained about the work. Ninjishida created an observation post. You can see males and females mate, but there was no conception or birth. Enki said that a curse was created by combining two species. Ninjishida pondered and proposed that the essences of Adamu and Tiamat be better observed. Let's study the ME matrices to see what could be wrong. In Shurabak, in the House of Healing, essences were contemplated. Twenty-two branches on the Tree of Life were there. The parts were comparable, determined images and likenesses, but did not include the ability to procreate. There was another essence present in the Anunnaki, as Ninjishida showed. One for the male, one for the female, and without this essence there was no procreation. It was in the beginning in the mold of Adamu and Tiamat that they were not present. Ninma was worried and Enki was deeply frustrated. But an action was needed. The information was that a new rebellion was being organized by the Anunnaki of the Abzu. 
Ninjisuda, an expert in these matters, had an idea. And he shut himself up alone with Enki, Ninma, Adamu, and Tiamat. And there in the house of healing at Shurabak a deep sleep caused Enki and Ninma to descend. Then he began the proceedings, from Enki's rib he extracted the life essence. Into Adamu's rib he inserted the essence extracted from Enki. And into Tiamat's rib he inserted the life essence extracted from Ninma's rib. Then, after suturing the incisions, Ninjisuda woke up all of them and announced, It's done! I added the tree of life the vital essences of the Anunnaki. Thus Adamu and Tiamat were sent to the Garden of Edens and freed. Both male and female became aware of their nakedness and Tiamat covered up their private parts so that they would be distinct from wild animals. Enlil, meanwhile, was walking through the garden when he came across Adamu and Tiamat. Frightened by the covered private parts, he summoned Enki to question him. What is this? Why are their private parts covered? Enki admitted to Enlil the importance of procreation for them and that the initial creations failed in this activity. Enki explained that Ninjisuda repaired the trees of life. Enlil was furious. He said, none of this was my will. We shouldn't act like creators. You said that the being we needed already existed. You said we just needed to put our brand on it. You put the Anunnaki at risk. You put Ninma and Ninki in danger. You put the caretakers of the House of Healing in danger. And it was all in vain. Your work is a failure. And so, the last act was to offer these creatures parts of our essence of life, that they might be like us in the knowledge of procreation and bestow upon them our life cycles. Enki called Ninma and Ninjisuda. Ninjisuda spoke, my lord in Lil. We gave them the knowledge of procreation. The long life branch has not been added to their core tree. Ninma said, what choice did we have, my brother? That it all ended in failure? That Nibiru's fate in destruction be found? Or that we make several attempts until earthlings take over the work through procreation? Out of Eden. Adamu and Tiamat are expelled from the Eden. And go to the Abzu. In Lil's feelings, nothing that had happened was to his desire. Expelling Adamu and Tiamat from Eden was a simple yet symbolic act. In Lil had shown all his displeasure with the creation of a new being.
Henke led Adamu and Tiamat to a garden with trees and allowed them to know each other. Thus, the miracle that Ninjushida had worked on became evident. The couple had twins, a boy and a girl. Nimba also observed the creation. The speed of events on Earth was greater than on Nibiru. Before Ashar had passed, the newborn beings were already proliferating. That's how Adamu and Tiamat had other sons and daughters, and they started to procreate by themselves, increasing the terrestrial population considerably. In the Apsu, the Anunnaki were free from work. Primitive workers did not complain about the work, the heat, or the dust, and they did not grumble. They worked hard and enjoyed their rations of food. Gold was being sent to Nibiru, and the hole in the atmosphere was showing considerable signs of improvement. Mission Earth progressed successfully. Among the Anunnaki, there was also marriage and procreation. The sons of Enki and Enlil also had sons and daughters. Although the life cycles originated from Nibiru, on Earth time accelerated, and the children of the Anunnaki grew more quickly. Nanna and Ningle had twins and named them Inanna and Utu. Then, the third generation of Earthborn Anunnaki had begun. New tasks mingled with old ones, and all of them were divided among the Anunnaki. Everything had changed. The heat over the earth increased, the white snow zones merged with the water, vegetation flourished, and wild creatures roamed the land. The rains were stronger, the rivers emanated, and it was necessary to repair the houses. The shores of the seas no longer had oceans. Volcanoes spewed fire and brimstone. The ground shuddered, and the earth shook at every moment. In the underworld, the place of the white color of snow, the earth grumbled. At the tip of the Absu, Enki established a place of observation and entrusted the world to his son Nurgle and his wife Ereshkigal. On Nibiruki, Enlil watched the heavenly bodies in the heaven-earth link and compared their movements with the Emi tablets. There is a disturbance in the heavens, Enlil said. On Lama, at the intermediary station, Marduk complained to Enki, his father. Strong winds are disruptive and raise irritating storms of dust. In the hammered bracelet, there are inconveniences. Yeah, they had a name oh, for no, the hammered bracelet that's the, the asteroid belt. Asteroids what we call the asteroid belt. Flaming fires blazed in the heavens. Darkness was brought to bright days and the ravages of storms and evil winds were visible. Tiamat, that's the remains of Tiamat. Stony missiles attacked Earth. Kingu, Lamu, and Earth faced an unknown calamity. On Nibiru, the sages spoke, but their words did not ease the hearts of their leaders. All that was happening in the heavens, in the family of the sun, the celestials, of which Earth was the seventh, was that they were choosing their places. Wow. Nibiru approached the abode of the sun. It had lost its way through the hammered bracelet. Then a new celestial battle would begin. 
last, Nibiru returned to its far abode in the depths, and the stony missile ceased to rain upon Earth and Lama. At this time, the first landing had already counted 80 shards, 288,000 years. Some Anunnaki took over the inspection of what had happened. Then Enki sounded the Earth's foundations and concluded that there would be no problem with the extraction of the vital gold. Ninurta checked the Edin and found that the landing place was intact and that in the valleys of the north, burning liquids had spilled. In addition, he discovered sulfuric mists and bitumen. Marduk, on Lamu, found the atmosphere damaged and dust storms interfering with the quality of life and work. Marduk told his father Enki that he wanted to return to Earth. Enlil, in his turn, reverted to his old plans and reconsidered the cities he had planned before. He said that the intermediary station on Lamu was no longer secure and that a place for ships had to be built on Edin. A place is needed so that we can get from Nibiru to Earth and back without an intermediary station, he said. But Ninurta spoke for a different idea. He said that Bad-Tabira, the city for which he was the commander, was the most recommended for the new takeoff place for the ships. Enlil conveyed the ideas to Anu, and it was established that the new place of departure and landing would be in the Edin. Thus, gold would be taken from Earth to Nibiru, and from Nibiru, supplies and more Anunnaki would arrive to work. Enki praised the plan, but told his father there was a disadvantage. He said that Earth's atmosphere was more attractive than Lamu's, and that to overcome this, the energies of the ships would be exhausted. Enki advocated an alternative idea, the construction of an intermediate base on the moon. And to ascertain this possibility, Enki offered his and Marduk's services. Anu agreed to survey the moon before building a station on Edin. Enki cheered, the moon had always fascinated him. For several nights, he had watched its cold silver disk and considered the moon an amazing celestial body. So Enki and Marduk went to Kingu. They circled the moon, observing its craters and holes, huge wounds caused by celestial battles. Celestial battles. Upon landing on the moon, they found that it was impossible to breathe without their eagle helmets, so they kept them on. And to ascertain this possibility, the moon has. Hashtag Celestial Battles. Estimation point. Anu agreed to survey the moon before building a station on Edin. Enki cheered. The moon had always fascinated him. For several nights, observing the conditions, Marduk declared that the place did not resemble Lamu and was not suitable for constructing an intermediary station. This clip from the Sumerian version of history.
My son, don't you see the dance in which the sun, moon, and earth take part? Let's stay here to study and analyze. With our instruments, we can measure and appreciate the handiwork of the creator of all. Marduk was persuaded by his father's words. Enki and Marduk made the ship their abode, and there they remained. For one earth year, three years, they measured movements across the earth and calculated the duration of a month. During six earth years, during twelve years around the sun, they measured the earth year. They recorded how the two interconnected, making the lights disappear. They turned their attention to the paths of Mamu and the Harmu. Enki explained to Marduk that, together with the earth and the moon, Lamu constituted the second region of the sun. Six were the celestials of the lower waters, and six were the celestials of the upper waters that lay beyond the hammer bracelet. Anshar and Kishar, Anu and Nudimid, Gargar and Nibiru. There were twelve in total. Twelve was the sun and its family. Marduk asked his father about the recent events. Why were there seven celestials in a row? Enki considered the turns around the sun and the great turn around it. He considered the positions of the earth and moon and the movements of Nibiru so as not to descend to the sun. He called the return the path of Anu. And from the deep, father and son watched the stars. Enki was fascinated by their groupings. He drew the images of twelve constellations from horizon to horizon. And he did so on the ways to and from, naming the top row of the path of Anu the path of Enlil and likewise designing the path that would bear his name. There were 36 constellations of stars located in the three paths. He decided that it would be designated in this way, in the position of the Earth when traveling around the Sun. Enki pointed out to Marduk the beginning of the cycle, the measurement of celestial time. He said, when I arrived on Earth, I named the time leading to the end Pisces. The one who follows my name, the one of the waters, I called it. Marduk said, your wisdom is fascinating, my father. But on Earth and Nibiru, government and knowledge are separate. My son, said Enki, what are you talking about? What are you missing? I have given you all knowledge. Marduk, in agony, said, My father, when the prime bile workers were created, you called not my mother, but Ninma, who is the mother of Ninurta. And then they called for Ninjishida, who is younger than I am. Your wisdom about life and death was shared with them, not me. Enki interjected, My son, you were given the command of the Ijiji on Lamu. There, you are the leader. Father, said Marduk, you are the firstborn of Anu and not Enlil. However, he is the legal heir. This place should be yours. You were the first to land and founded Eridu. But Eridu is in Enlil's dominion, and your command is delegated to the distant Abzu. 
And as for me, I am your firstborn, born of your lawful wife, on Nibiru. But now, gold gathers in the city of Ninurta. Nibiru's survival is in your hands, not mine. Upon returning to Earth, what will my job be? Am I doomed? Will fame and royalty be my future? Or will I be humiliated again? Enki embraced his son on the desolate moon and promised him, what I was deprived of, your future will come. My time will be adjacent to yours. After this conversation, new calculations and exchanges of ideas emerged. Enlil, on Earth, was scared. He had informed Anu of his concern. Meanwhile, Enki and Marduk spent countless years on the moon, and there was no sign of their return. What were they up to? Their actions are a mystery, and it is not known what they plan to do, said Enlil. At this time, the situation was worrying. On Lamu, the Ijiji were anxious and agitated. Marduk had moved away, and the intermediary station had been affected by the storms of dust, without a damage assessment. Everyone was waiting for a solution. Enlil insisted on the need to build the spaceport in the Edin, and Ninurta with the construction in Bad Tabira. Then Anu uttered his holy decision. Enki and Marduk will return from the moon. We will hear their words about their findings, and then a decision will be made. The news was that the moon was not suitable, and Anu decided that the new spaceport should be built. Enki spoke, let Marduk be the commander then. The Ijiji no longer need his command. Let Marduk guard the entrance of heaven. This task is reserved for Ninurta, Enlil said in anger. Anu thought. He observed that their sons were affected by rivalries. Then he decided, neither Enlil nor Enki, nor Ninurta or Marduk. Responsibility for the spaceport will be held by the third generation of Anunnaki. Utu will be the commander. Let the place be called the Bird City, and Sippar shall be its name. Enlil began preparations for setting up the spaceport. He observed Nibruki and endowed the new place with an equal circle. Command was assigned to Utu, the grandson of Enlil, as determined by Anu, the king of Nibiru. Thus, a new era began. Anu was present for the inauguration, as were the Ijiji of Lamu and the Anunnaki from all places. Inanna performed with singing and dancing. It was a big celebration. The gold was piled high, the delivery would be large, and the direct supply of gold and salvation was on its way. The end of the hard work was getting closer. Anu announced that the work on Earth might slow down and that some Anunnaki might return to Nibiru. A few more shards of work and soon they'll be home, he said. Marduk did not return to Lamu, nor did he accompany his father to Edin. He wanted to know all lands in his celestial ship. Then Utu was assigned to command the Ijiji, some on Earth and some on Lamu. Everyone worked with enthusiasm. It was the final effort for a quick return. However, in the Abzu, the Anunnaki did not work as intently. They said that earthlings were proliferating and could replace them in activities. 
the news swept the premises across the lands, and quickly the Anunnaki of the Edin demanded primitive workers. There were 40 shahs in which there was relief from the work in the Abzu, and in the Edin there was no rest. While Enki and Enlil argued, Minerta made his decision alone and mounted an armed expedition to the Abzu. In the woods, he captured some earthlings and took them to the Edin. Enki was angry, and Enlil was enraged. You revoked my decision to banish Adamu and Tiamat from the Edin, Enlil said to Ninurta. I am preventing new rebellions, Ninurta defended himself. In the Edin, the Anunnaki watched with admiration the work of earthlings. They were endowed with intelligence and strength and took charge of all kinds of tasks. Males and females, however, had a constant relationship and proliferated without stopping. The Anunnaki were not satisfied with food, and in those days there were no grains and no sheep. Enlil was furious. Enki said, may you seek salvation, may you find a solution. Enki was pleased with the proliferation of terrestrial beings and worried at the same time. The Anunnaki fled from work, and little by little, the earthlings became servants. For seven shahs, the Anunnaki accommodated. For three shahs, there was a lack of fish and food. Anunnaki and earthlings were starving. Enki, in his heart, planned a civilized humanity. He carefully studied and analyzed the new beings, in rivers and woods, at work, during copulation, and at rest. Enki shared with Isimud, his vizier, all his observations. Until one day, Enki was sailing in a boat and saw two beautiful young women of wild beauty. Isimud encouraged him, kiss them and meet them. Enki offered the ladies fruits and berries from the field, and then he kissed them, met them, and poured his vital fluid into their wounds. Isimud undertook to observe whether the two would become pregnant, and the answer was affirmative. Enki said to Isimud, let no one know what happened. By the 93rd Shah begotten by Enki, the two were born in the Edin, fed by their mothers, and then brought to Enki's house. Isimud said that the two were found among the reeds, and Enki's secrets were secure. Ninki took the two with affection and raised them as her children. The boy was called Adapa, and the girl was called Tai Tai. Ninki taught Tai Tai many things. Enki taught Adapa everything that was possible. Enki entrusted all his joy to Isimud. He said, I created civilized mankind. I created civilized mankind. They will tame sheep and grow seeds. Enki sent the words to his brother in Lil. He said that a new type of being had appeared in the middle of the desert. Enlil personally went from Nibruki to Eridu. Enki explained that they were quick to learn and could teach knowledge and crafts.
Bring from Nibiru the seeds for them to sow. Bring from Nibiru the sheep to divide the earth. Let us teach the new class of earthlings agriculture and herding. The Anunnaki and earthlings will sit together at the same table. Enlil was amazed. In fact, it was incredible. He inquired Isama to confirm, Did you really find them among the reeds? Enlil shook his head and pondered everything with fear and amazement. He decided to send the news to Anu. Anu was astonished. It was not new that one species led to another, but he had never heard of anything like this and that civilized man appeared on earth so quickly directly from Adamu. Anu pondered that for sowing and herding, large numbers would be needed. Would they be able to proliferate? While the sages of Nibiru pondered the matter, in Eridu, Adapa and Tai Tai knew each other. There was conception and birth. Tai Tai gave birth to two brothers. They were twins. Anu heard the news. And he sent the seeds and the sheep to be grown on earth. And so he determined, Tai Tai should remain in Eridu to feed and take care of the newborns. And let Adapa the earthly be brought to Nibiru. Enlil was not pleased with his father's decision. Who could have thought of such a decision? What would happen when Adapa was taken to Nibiru? He would travel between the sky and the stars and would be endowed with this knowledge. Then in Nibiru, he would drink from the waters and eat the food of long life. And then he would become like the Anunnaki. Enki was scared. His face turned dark after Anu's decision. He agreed with Enlil, who could expect a decision like this. Ninma was with them. She said, the sovereignty of our father Anu cannot be avoided. Enki spoke up, let's send our young ones to accompany him and see Nibiru with their own eyes. Let Ninjisida and Dumuzi be with Adapa to come and guide him. Ninma agreed, they are our children born on earth. Our generation is forgetting the cycles of Nibiru, its cycles now follow the earth. Let Enki's two unmarried sons travel to Nibiru. They may find brides there. Thus, a celestial chamber arrived from Nibiru in Sippar. Ilabrat, a vizier of Anu, came out of the ship. I have come to fetch the earthling Adapa, he said. Adapa was called, as well as Tai Tai and the young Kayan and Abael. Ilabrat said, it's amazing how much the earthlings resemble us. They certainly have our image and likeness. Enki introduced his sons, Ninjishsida and Dumuzi, and told Ilabrat that he had selected them to accompany Adapa. Anu will be happy to see his grandchildren, said Ilabrat. Enki called Adapa and gave him instructions. He said, Adapa, you will be taken to Nibiru, the planet where we come from. And there you will be received by Anu, our king. In front of him, bow down. Speak only what is necessary and everything you are asked. Offer brief answers. You will receive new clothes and should wear what is given to you. You will be offered bread that is not found on earth. Do not eat it, it is deadly. You will be offered a chalice with a drink. 
The drink is deadly. Do not drink it. My children in Jishsida and Dumuzi will accompany you. Obey their words and you will live. Then Enki called his sons and offered them instructions as well. You will be received by the king, my father, and should bow down before him. Do not hide from the nobles and princes. You are equal to them. Your mission is to bring Adapa back to earth. Do not allow yourselves to be enchanted by the delights of Nibiru. After greeting his sons, Enki offered Ninjishsudur a secret and sealed tablet. He said, deliver it to my father, Anu, the king, in secret. Then the three headed to Sippar, to the place of the ships and greeted Illibrat, entering the ship that soon departed. Dressed in an eagle helmet, Adapa cowered and screamed in fear. He said, the armless eagle is rising. Ninjishsuda and Dumuzi calmed him down. And then the earth hid in the immense emptiness of the cosmic ocean and Nibiru appeared in front of it. Upon arrival, they were received with great curiosity. The Anunnaki born on earth and a being from another world had arrived. In the palace, the nobles formed groups and in the throne room, princes and counselors were gathered. Illibrat burst into the hall, followed by Adapa and Enki's two sons. They bowed before Anu. Anu greeted his grandchildren, moved and with tears in his eyes, he kissed them. Then Dumuzi sat to his right, Ninjishsuda to his left. And then Adapa was introduced to Anu by Illibrat. Do you understand what we are saying? asked Anu. Illibrat replied. Certainly, Enki taught him. Come here, said Anu. What is your name and occupation? Adapa stood before the king and bowed down. My name is Adapa, servant of Lord Enki. His words caused great astonishment. Anu said, wonder of wonders achieved on earth. The princes and nobles of the royal hall accompanied him. Let us celebrate then, concluded Anu. Everyone headed to the banquet hall. Tables filled with bread and drink. But Adapa did not accept anything offered to him. Anu said, why did you bring this uneducated earthling here to offer him celestial secrets? Anu turned to Adapa, why do you reject our hospitality? Why do you not eat or drink? Adapa said, my teacher, Lord Enki, said, do not eat or drink anything. How strange, said Anu. It was then that Ninjishsuda approached and handed Anu the secret tablet, saying, the answer may be found here. Anu was confused and worried, so he retreated to his private chamber to open the sealed tablet. He inserted the tablet into the explorer, and the message was revealed, Adapa was born from my seed with an earthly woman. Similarly, Taitai was conceived by my seed with another earthly woman. They are endowed with wisdom and speech, but not with the long life of Nibiru. He must not eat the bread or drink the drink. Adapa must return to Earth, and his fate must be to live and die there. His descendants will plant and shepherd, and from this will come satiety. Anu was surprised. He did not know whether to laugh or be angry. He called his vizier, Illibrat, and showed him the message, asking about the rules and what the king should do. Illibrat explained, our rules allow for concubines, but there is no clarification regarding interplanetary relations. Ninjishsuda was called to Anu's chamber. Did you know the content of your father's secret message? Anu asked. 
Ninjisuda lowered his head in response and said, I did not know, but I can guess. I tested Adapa's life essence and it corresponds to the seed of my father, Enki. Anu confirmed that the message was true and ordered Adapa to return to Earth immediately. Ninjisuda, you must accompany him, said Anu. You shall be a teacher of civilized humanity alongside your father, Enki. Anu returned to the hall where the celebrations were taking place and announced, the welcome shall not be extended. The earthling shall not eat or drink on our planet. We have already witnessed his amazing abilities. Now let him return to earth and generate descendants. To ensure his safety, Ninjisuda accompanied Adapa and returned with him, carrying the seeds of Nibiru's cereal crops. Dumuzi remained for one shah, and upon his return, he brought the sheep and the essences of the sheep with him. Everyone heard the king's words. And so, Adapa and Ninjisuda were led to the location of the celestial ships. During so, the journey, Ninjisuda explained to Adapa about the gods, the planets. Alright, now. Adapa is... First... I get confused. Uh, what's the relationship between Ad Adamu and Adapa? Adapa is like 2.0 versus Adam 2.0. And so then now, right now they're coming, um, the, you know, the myth of Adapt, I covered that in another podcast. Um, it's in the Book of Enoch, I believe, which is, I've also covered the past couple of days, pretty mind-blowing stuff. It tells you what the archangels are like, I mean, like the, in the, and the heavens are, you know, their domains. The gods, domains of the domain of the god, domains, house of the lords. Um. Anyway, so they're taking sheep essences. They brought sheep. Sheep were from uh, Nibiru, as well as uh, grains. They brought all this. That's why grains just suddenly popped up everywhere. Barley and millet and anyway. And the names that were offered. He taught him about the month. Part two, last or lost book of Enki. Zechariah Sitchins was right about everything. Tablets nine or six to nine. And how the Earth's year was counted. Upon arriving on Earth, Enki awaited them. He told Ninjisuda that everything had happened as expected, except for Dumuzi's stay on Nibiru. Enlil became suspicious of their immediate return and asked for clarification. Ninma was also called to talk with Enki. That was when Enki revealed to them what had actually happened and the true origin of Adapa. However, he made it clear that he had not broken any rules, but rather ensured satiety. Enlil became enraged. You did not break any rules, but you have cast the fate of the Anunnaki and the Earthlings. It was then that Marduk arrived in Eridu, called by his mother, Ninki. Enki and Ninjisuda decided to hide the truth from Marduk. Marduk was impressed with Adapa and Taitai and soon became attached to the twins, Kain and Abael. Ninjisuda will instruct Adapa, let me be the teacher of the boys, said Marduk. Enlil said, let Marduk teach one of them and let Ninurta teach the other. So Ninjisuda stayed in Eridu to teach My Adapa Bible and Taitai. He taught them the sciences of writing and numbers. 
Ninurta took the first of the twins born to Bat-Tabira. It was Ninurta who named him Kain, the one who makes crops grow in the field. He taught him to dig irrigation canals, sell, harvest, and plow the land with wooden trees. Marduk took the other brother, whom he called Abael, the one of the wet meadows. Marduk taught him how to build stables to start herding when Dumu he called a spawn of elaboration, twins born to Bactabira. It was Ninurta who named him Kain, the one who makes crops grow in the field. He taught him to dig ir canals, sow, harvest, and plow the land with wooden trees. Marduk took the other birding when Dumuzi returned from Nibiru. Thus, Dumuzi brought quadruped animals. The other version of Cain and Abel story. Lawyers at DOJ indictment incoming. Trump's world crumbles as lawyers meet with Justice Department. Yeah, live. Yes. Um, was really what she said. About, I mean, it's all. It's all. She ended up blaming the media for making the Charleston shirt shooting about race. Once again, Nikki Haley was one of the people responsible for actually getting the Confederate flag taken down after these horrific events from the state capitol because of what it represents. That should be something in any normal political party that people are actually running on, are running on opposing racism. We're going to pull up. As more news broke about potential for counsel Jack Smith and Jack Smith's team at the Department of Justice yeah. offices, special counsel Jack Smith was present at that meeting. Donald Trump responded by one counsel Jack when a Big news in special counsel Jack. Smith's criminal investigation of funded by whining and complaining how unfair it is that he may get criminal Donald charge. Jack These messages Trump. look 